Hello and welcome to the Untold Stories podcast. I'm Osama Gawish. I'm joining me today, Karen Kanimba, Anis Kanimba, and Michaela Rong. This episode reveals the untold stories of two adopted Rwandan sisters whose fathers saved their lives from the genocide in 1994. And they are now working to save his life. Karen and Anis Kanimba were born in the time of war between the two ethnics, Hutus and Tutsis in Rwanda. They both witnessed the killing of their biological parents during the horrific genocide, where 800,000 people were killed in only 100 days. The two young sisters were adopted and fled Rwanda after multiple assassinations attempt on their family. They moved to Belgium and the United States, where they were brought up with their father. The man who searched in every refugee camp in Rwanda for children until he found them. The man who adopted them and raised them as his own daughters. The man who saved their life. This man is named Paul Rosisa Pagina. Paul Rosisa Pagina is the real-life hero of acclaimed Hollywood film Hotel Rwanda and the president and founder of the Hotel Rwanda Rosisa Pagina Foundation. As portrayed by actor Don Schiedel in the film, Rosisa Pagina saved the lives of more than 1,200 people during the 1994 Rwandan genocide. He bravely risked his life to shelter Hutus and Tutsis who were seeking refuge from the genocide that killed more than 800,000 people in 100 days. Rosisa Pagina describes his experience during the horrific genocide the terror and the helplessness of the people he sheltered, and the ways in which governments, non-governmental organizations, and ordinary people can work together to prevent genocide throughout the world. In 2000, Paul Rosisa Pagina received the Immortal Chaplain's Prize for Humanity. In 2005, he received the highest civilian award in the United States, the Presidential Medal of Freedom from President George W. Posh. After receiving those honors, Rosisa Bagina formed the Hotel Rwanda Rosisa Bagina Foundation to help provide voice to victims of genocide and support peace efforts in Rwanda and throughout the world. Then his story with Rwandan President Kagame had a dramatic turn. In 2005, Rosisa Bagina published his memoir and wrote, Rwanda is a country that has never known democracy. The current president, Paul Kagame, has exhibited many characteristics of the classic African strongman since taking power. He was re-elected with 95% of the vote, and there is nobody in the world that can call results like that a free election and keep a straight face. Rwanda is today a nation government governed by and for the benefit of a small group of Tuesdays. We have changed the dancers, but the music remains the same, said Paul Rosesa Bagina. And then he does something even more confrontational. He writes a letter to the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda recommending that war crime charges be brought against President Kagame. So these words, plus his public advocacy and exposing of human rights abuses in Rwanda, brought him in the crosshair of Rwandan's long-term president, Kagame. His family believed that Rwanda president Paul Kagame sought to have Paul Rosesa Bagina assassinated over the years through various assassination attempts. 
in August 2020. Rosessa Bagina was kidnapped, bound, drugged, and flown to Rwanda to face terrorism charges in an operation described by President Kagame as a flawless operation. In September 2021, the Hotel Rwanda's activist was sentenced to 25 years imprisonment. Many international park councils and human rights organizations consider his trial as a politically motivated short, short trial. Paul Rosisa Bagina remains detained in Rwanda until this day. A global campaign is being led by many across the world for his release. So to find out more about the untold stories of Karen and Anis Kanimba, how is Rosisa Bagina in Rwandan prison now and the global campaign to freeing him and an overview on the Rwandan situation. Let me welcome my guests in this episode. And I start with Karen Kanimba. Karen is a graduate of Northwestern University and went on to receive a master's in law and economics from Aix-Marseille University, Erasmus University, Rotterdam in the Netherlands and University of Bologna. She fled Rwanda as a child during the horrific genocide and multiple assassination attempts on her family. When Karen is not fighting for the freedom and justice of her father, Paul Rosisa Bagina. She works in finance to pursue knowledge and opportunity in the name of giving it back to the most vulnerable population in the world in the sector of impact investing. Karen was a victim of the Pegasus Project. According to Amnesty International Forensic Analysis, Kanimba's phone had been infiltrated by an Israeli surveillance software since at least January this year. And my second guest in this episode, Anis Kanimba. Anis is co-leading with her sister Karen the Freedom of Their Father's Campaign. She spent the last several years working in the international development space, focusing on digital health and analytics. She graduated from Georgetown University with a bachelor's degree in biology of global health and a minor in African studies. And our third guest in this episode, Michaela Rock. Michaela is a journalist based in London. She has spent nearly three decades writing about Africa. First, as a Reuters correspondent based in Cote d'Ivoire and former Zaire, and then as a Financial Times Africa correspondent based in Kenya. Her previous books include In the Footsteps of Mr. Kurtz, the story of Mopoto Sisiko. I didn't do it for you, focusing on Eritrea, it's our turn to eat, an examination of Kenyan corruption and borderlines, a novel. Her latest book, Don't Disturb, is a scathing assessment of the Rwandan Patriotic Front and President Paul Kagame. So, Karen, Anis, and Michaela, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. So, um, welcome you all to Untold Stories, and let me start the discussion with you, Karen, from the early beginning, actually, in April 1994, the one-year child witnessed the murder of her parents. So, uh, how do you remember that day, and who told you about it? Um, so, I was a baby at the time. I was one year old, um, and thankfully, 
I don't remember what happened during those um, brutal days because I was a baby. Um, and it's a good thing because many people in my family um, who survived and remember every second of the genocide still have PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder from um, hearing a boom, a loud boom brings them back to those days. And so I'm grateful not to have the memory of my father's, my, my biological parents' um, killing. Um, however, some people, my aunt um, was with my parents when they were both murdered and she was able to tell us the story. And my mom as well was able to, my adoptive mother was able to, to, to tell us as we grew older what had happened to our parents. And uh, it's something that took many years for us to process, to understand and to, to also be grateful that we are still alive today. Yeah, and, and it's, um, in a TED Talk in 2019, Karen said that you were laughing during that day of genocide in Rwanda. So um, how do you remember that day? Yeah, so I actually have uh, also, like Karen, I don't remember all those details. The details that I've learned uh, of my, our parents' um, killings were through our own family. And as you can imagine, uh, it's been very difficult for my aunts and my uncles to be able to tell us about the death of their own brother and sister-in-law um, and explaining to us. So it's always been a very difficult um, experience talking about it. For me, my earliest memories, I think, was been very difficult throughout my um, teenage years. And when I found, after I found out about my parents' kidnapping was the movie Hotel Rwanda. I always picture those faces of the actors that play my parents' faces instead of remembering the they're real faces because during the genocide they actually burned a lot of um, memories. They wanted the the, the rebels, the Inerahange, would burn photos, would burn anything on their way, so to erase uh, the lives of the people that they killed. And so the only early recollections that I have actually come from this movie Hotel Rwanda, and it's a hidden love relationship because you know it's this movie that has shined light about the story of our, of many people in our country. But at the same time, it's also taken away uh, what I had about my parents and this between this, uh, I think, affinity and these images that I had been able, able to create from the photos that were left. So it's a mixed feeling, but I, like Karine, I think it's it's helped me uh, be able to move on in my life and, and live my life in a different way that other members of our family have, have had to experience because they lived it and they saw all the, the atrocities. Yeah, and, and Michaela, my question for you as a veteran journalist who covered African countries for many, many years, is, is that the international community was aware about the Rwandan genocide before Hotel Rwanda movie? Uh, well, it depends who you talk to. Diplomats and aid workers and journalists who worked in Africa were certainly aware of it because they covered the story in, in a lot of detail. I mean, they were slow to the story because one of the misfortunes of of history is that the Rwandan genocide coincided with the first elections in South Africa, uh, which was a good news story. So a lot of the journalists who were based in the continent and were expecting, uh, they, they headed for South Africa and then the Rwandan genocide exploded and it meant that they, they were in the wrong place and they couldn't quite believe what was happening. They didn't understand, they didn't have the background. Uh, and so the coverage was very slow to get started. But of course, once it did start up, uh, it was such a massive, appalling, horrible story that um, that it became the biggest story, you know, in Africa and has remained so in many ways for for a long time. 
Um, so I think that international community does know about it. But if you talk to an ordinary person on the street in Britain or France or Italy or the States or Canada, um, you know, they will probably know about Rwanda because of the film. Uh, that, that's it's as simple as that. That that's the one thing they will associate Rwanda with. So so that that film was very influential um, mm. with a certain kind of a bigger audience. You know that the, the audience is related to a personal stories. So was the Hot for Rwanda um, most influential point? Is highlighted the uh, poor Rosie Sabagina story? Um, well, it, it used Paul Rousseau's Abagina story because he had, had played this uh, incredible role um, at the hotel, the Hotel Mille Colline, where there were a lot of Tutsis who were hiding during the ethnic massacres that were taking place. Um, and he, 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 he basically turned the hotel into a kind of fortress, a, a place where they would be safe while they were surrounded by the Intara Hamwe and the Rwandan army that was trying to, to kill these people, this, the, these members of the minority Tutsi community. So he, he played an extraordinary role. He wasn't the only person in Rwanda who played an extraordinary role. But the nature of a film is that you focus in on one man's story and then you use it to tell a bigger story, a big, bigger story about a country, about a culture, about um, the whole, um, the way in which um, the international community interacts with Africa. So, so he, his story got a lot of attention, but you know there were many other stories, and I'm, I'm sure he would be the first to say that. Yeah, and coming back to you again, the people know about your father's story, about poor Rosisa Bagina's story, the Hot Rwanda movie, as Michaela mentioned, but there is untold stories of yourself and Anis with this man, actually. So when was the first time you know that Rosisa Bagina is not your biological father? So I learned um, about that, that he wasn't my, that he was my adoptive father when I was seven years old. Um, my mom had taken my sister and Ais and I in, in the bedroom and she sat between us and opened an album, a photo album, um, which we have very, very few photos from before the genocide because as Anais mentioned, many things were burned and destroyed. Um, so she held on to one photo of our mom and of our biological mother and one photo of our biological father. And she pointed to them saying, I have, a I have something to tell you. I am not your biological mother. I, I, I'm not the mo mother who brought you to earth, but these are your parents. And um, they, she explained how they had died during the genocide. And what we learned is that um, our, during, in the beginning of the genocide, as our parents, uh, who were both ethnic Tutsis, um, were trying to, were told that um, they would be taken somewhere to safety. There were um, trucks and a lot of people outside in the streets saying, come on out everyone, encouraging all the people in the houses to come out and that they were going to be driven, taken somewhere to safety to, um, because the genocide had begun and the danger was all around them. As they gathered our parents and, the, and our, my sister Anais and I, um, our parents were carrying us. As they gathered in this, us in the center of the road, along with all the neighbors, they began shooting at us. And we all fell to the ground. Many people were killed. Many people were, were hit by bullets, including our father. And um, he died at that moment. And, and the shocking thing that my aunt remembers from that, that moment is that Anais, who was uh, two years old at the time, didn't know that this was, that they were killing, that they were shooting at us. So she started laughing. And so my aunt had to 
hold her uh, her mouth, my sister's mouth, in order to keep her from from making more noise and attracting attention. And so after at the moment we we realized that our father had been hit with the bullets and he was no longer moving. Um, and our mom, but our biological mother and our aunt carried us back into the house and hid us there for for a few days until they came back and and took our mom away as well. Um, at that time, our aunt had also uh, found a way to to flee, and so we were um, we were held in the house alone until neighbors came by and and took us into their house um, for for the remainder of the genocide until we were moved to the refugee camp. So essentially, our our parents were killed at that in the really beginning of the genocide, and then eventually we were taken to a refugee camp where um, Paul Rosessa Begina um, had learned that we were still alive. Uh, he and our adoptive mother, Tatiana Rosessa Begina, um, they searched all the camps all everywhere for us until they, they found Anais and I. We were sick, we were malnourished, we were very skinny, having spent the entire genocide with, with little food and little, um, little attention given, given the situation. Um, since then, they adopted us as their own children. Uh, I was one year old, one year old, and Ais was two year, years old, and um, they've raised us since then as their own daughters, and with all the love that that we had lost with our parents' death. And I would like to add, uh, in addition to the day we found out about our biological parents and and their um, murder, it's it was a very difficult day for my mother, Tassiana, who our, our aunt, who today I call mother. Tassiana's uh, brother is our biological father, Thomas Kanimba. So on that day, she was she was she had to explain us to us what happened to our own mom and dad, what happened to our grandma, what happened to our all our uncles in our family, because. During the genocide, it was not just those two people in our family that were killed. It was my grandmother and my uncles and some other cousins. And it was very, very difficult for her to do that because it was even, it was less than 10 years after the genocide. As so she, I'm just saying that because as she was grieving herself um, for these losses, she also had to add this additional information to us, which uh, was the last thing in the world that she wanted to, to ever do and to bring to us, to tell to tell us, but it's the reality and it's just the life that many of the Rwandans have gone through uh, since the genocide. Wow. So if, uh, if I say Thomas Kanimba and uh, Fidens Kanimba, your, your biological parents, uh, Karen and Anise, why you kept your surname, your surname as your father? Why you didn't change your name to Rusis Bagina? So our parents and did not want us to forget um, our, our, who our parents were. Um, as Anais explained, um, our biological father is our adoptive mother's brother. So it's, it's family that did not want their names to, to, to be forgotten. And they wanted us to learn about them and to know who they were because so many lives were taken during the genocide. And um, lives were taken, but we don't have to forget them. We don't. We want to keep them in our memories. And in order to learn about them and to know about them, and be proud to be carrying their names, um, they they wanted us to be proud to have their names and to continue to to share the stories that about them and to continue to learn about who they were um, for legacy. Yes, and I would just add, it's a way to keep them alive. You know. Yeah, exactly. But um, I listened to your TED Talk in 2019, Karen, and it, it was amazing, really strong and inspirational. 
Um, you said that the genocide is part of your legacy and you moved from being shamed and angry of your story to the healing and forgiveness. So how did you both manage to cope with this trauma and when was the first time you were able to tell your own story? So it was um, uh, it was a process. It certainly was a process, a healing process, because we we learned it at a young age. You know, it's at, at seven years old. It, you're too young to process um, information about genocides, about killings, about um, the, the the tragic history of our country. is is hard for adults, then let alone children, to to comprehend. Um, so there was that aspect of not only trying to make sense of something that is impossible to make sense of, like a genocide, um, but also at a young age, you know, our, we kept our, our, our adoptive parents, um, kept our, our biological parents' names, Anais and, and Karim Ganimba, and um, which meant that in school, although we had a brother who is our adoptive brother, and his name is Trisor Rousseff Begina, um, we were all in school together and our teachers would say, well, you are all siblings, but somehow your brother's last name is Rosetta Begina and your last name is Kanimba. And that would turn in, lead into questions, questions that I did not have the answer up for and questions that made me uncomfortable to, or for the answers that I did have at the time, I didn't know how to explain it, how to process it. And I was even ashamed to have survived the genocide and to be there to tell people about it when I know that my biological parents hadn't. And so all of this at a young age was difficult. And I think both the shame of that, but also the anger that I felt from knowing that somebody killed my biological parents, it wasn't a natural death. So I had anger as well, anger for people I did not know, for faces I did not know. And um, and it took a long time um, speaking with my, my parents and, and my sister about it in order for us to really understand and to make sense of it and be um, and have find strength within it. And I had the opportunity when I was um, in eighth grade, I believe, to to speak in front of my class uh, where I revealed my story for the first time. And I was shocked by the fact that my classmates were curious to hear the story. They weren't uh, grossed out, they weren't shocked. Well, they were shocked, but they were curious. Um, and then afterwards, they started telling me some of their stories, their backgrounds, their upbringings, which I realized that in the end, everyone has their story, everyone has their trauma, and it's about how to share that story and to allow others to, to to empower others and to also allow others to empower you with their stories. And I became more confident to talk about it and more confident to explain this tragic history that we all have to live with. And, um, and so that has helped me heal, has helped me grow and has helped me embrace our story and embrace our upbringing. And most importantly, be grateful that um, we are alive today. Well, what about you, Anis? Um, I think I would echo the feeling of shame that Karin uh, mentioned. I think this is it was definitely the biggest feeling that I had in my childhood. Uh, Trezor is just seven months apart, so just to give you the context, I was born January 1st, 1992. Trezor was born on August 10th, 1992, and Karin was born on May 8th, 1993. So you can imagine that in school, we are always together in the same grades and me and my brother were always in the same grade and always having to explain how come 
I was his sister, but I was born, you know, only less than nine, less than nine months apart. You know, it was very difficult. And you always have to shame and give an excuse. And then the movie Hotel Rwanda came out. You know, this is a movie that essentially put my father on the map uh, in a way that we had never anticipated. Um, we saw a lot of news and people talking about us and then talking, always saying adopted daughters, a language and a word that I never liked to hear because I never wanted to be reminded of the past, of the past, of the fact that my parents had been killed. And um, so it was very difficult in those, by then I was 12 years old, you know, starting to be a teenager. Uh, we had the chance to go to, to, to the United States to attend boarding school uh, for education, but also for security reasons, because the government was still pers persecuting our family in Belgium. You know, everybody knew this story of mine, this side of mine that I was never ready to share. I was, I didn't fully comprehend. And with Kareen, with our parents, with our family, we discussed about this. But this feeling of shame and not being ready to share was really persistent in my in my life until uh, I was a senior in high school when I uh, did a chapel talk in which I uh, every I, I every weeks as senior students uh, would give us a, a speech and I had the courage then to that's when I had the courage to speak about this past of mine and one of the main questions that I've always wondered is why did I not die with my parents why was I still on this earth um, and I. In the end, in my chapel talk, and I, I told my, my classmates, is maybe it's my destiny. Maybe I cannot control why am I here. Maybe I'll never have those question answers. And if I never have those question answers, then this feeling of shame and all the feelings I always have then are not as important because I will never be able to answer the main question that I have. Um, and so from then on, I really felt free. And just like Kareen, my friends supported me in a way that I never expected uh, they gave me their shoulder to cry on and the more I grow up you know the more I learn about my own past and I think it's a it's still a journey that I'm on and even for myself being able to talk to you about this in such a personal way is a learning experience for me and so um, I thank you for that but um, it's definitely a journey and I think a journey that I'm still on. Well, Mekela, as a journalist, um, uh, with your first-hand experience uh, of what were going on in Rwanda and many other African countries, your work, your coverage, even your book revealed many, many stories like Karen and uh, Anise. And I'm sure as journalists, we, we, we all faced from covering from war zone and so on, facing mental health issues and, you know, the trauma, post-trauma syndrome, uh, because of our coverage. So, firstly, my question is, how do you see the long journey of Karen and Anis fleeing the genocide and now sitting with us, speaking bravely and proudly about their story and their life? Well, I, I, I met the girls recently here in London and I was very, very moved by their stories. And to be honest, we didn't go into the detail that you just have during your programme. So... I'm learning and and uh, and digesting what I've been hearing, and I find it very, very moving and very um, very insightful. Um, I I think uh, you know my my experience of Rwanda. I I um, I've written a book about Rwanda. It took me four or five years, but 
there were long periods of time in which as a journalist I detached from Rwanda and I wrote about other places. But when I come back to the story, what really um, strikes me is um, how the, the trauma of the genocide, but also what happened before the genocide, the violence that predated the genocide yeah. uh, and the violence that has continued, how, how deep a scar it has placed on people and how they are still digesting it and how you know, countries that have been through these traumas, it just goes on and on. It never finishes. Um, you know, we all talk about mental health, but it's it's a constant process. Uh, it, 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 you can never say you, you come to terms with something like a genocide uh, or all the events that led up to the genocide. You never do. It, it's just a constant process. And regarding the coping mechanism, do you believe that telling your story telling your heart story and this horrific experience is a kind of a good and strong mechanism to coping with your trauma and post-trauma syndromes? Well, that's a good question. I think, you know, I live in the West and I often think that we put too much emphasis on sharing and oversharing. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of the touchy-feely nature of our, our modern society here in the West. But, but that's partly because we, we, we have very privileged lives. And, and when you when you do talk to somebody who's been through the kind of trauma that you you have experienced in places like Rwanda or other countries I've, I've written about Eritrea, Ethiopia, Kenya, um, I, I I think there is a secrecy. I think people are instinctively secret about trauma. They they do feel ashamed. I mean, it's very interesting that both Karin and Anais use this word shame, and you sort of think, well, what have you got to be ashamed of? Hmm. You know, why should you feel shame? Why should anyone feel shame at having been you know, have, having had this terrible violence inflicted on their family. Why should that make you feel personally ashamed? But that is the way we are as human beings. And um, and I think that there is a tendency, there's this human reaction to just close down, keep it to yourself, not share it, not talk about it. And, and, and yeah, that is then does present a problem because when you bottle it up, one of the tendencies, the things that happen is then people want to take revenge later on. Uh, and you see this in country after country, in, in Rwanda, Ethiopia, Eritrea, that if you've had terrible atrocities inflicted on your community, you then want to go and do the same thing on the community that you blame for those atrocities. And then you get in this cycle of a never-ending violence. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, speaking out is therefore very important because people on both sides have to recognize what, what communities did to one another. Um, and the trouble is that we often have a very partial narrative. And in Rwanda, it's a very good case of this, this, this very partial narrative in which Victor's justice is the narrative that has taken hold. Um, and we need to accept that, that that is not the full picture. And you're never going to have peace in places like Rwanda unless you admit what both communities, you know, and the militias and the fighters associated with them, what they did. Yeah, and back to you, Karen and Anis. As, as I said in my introduction... Uh, we are talking about the story of a man who saved your life uh, after the genocide, and now uh, you are working to save his life. So um, how is your father now in, in, in Rwanda, and when was the last time you talked to him? So our father, um, as you know, um, was kidnapped uh, in August of last year. 
he was kidnapped uh, via a private jet um, via Dubai and taken to Rwanda forcefully in violation of international law because the Rwandan government did not use um, illegal, the legal methods of extradition like they have in the past. And that is because they had no evidence, no credible evidence against our father. So they had to kidnap him, take him to Rwanda and, um, and tie him, torture him for four days until before parading him in front of the media. Um, afterwards, he was denied his medication that was sent to him via the, the Belgian embassy. Um, and then he was put in solitary confinement for 200, over 260 days, which is a violation of the UN Nelson Mandela rules that states that um, uh, more than 15 days in solitary amounts to psychological torture. Um, so he was kidnapped, tortured physically and psychologically, denied his medication, and then even denied access to the, the, his uh, chosen lawyers um, to represent him for the, the, sh the show trial that the Rwandan government wanted to put together. And so since then, um, our father, who, as you mentioned in the introduction, was convicted on, in September for 25 years of prison. Um, but uh, it has been it's an, a trial that was that has been qualified as unfair and lacking of due process by all standards, and um, and that's why we're now working to free him. We are very 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 concerned about his health because while we know he has the mental strength to to go to to hold on as he he did in 1994 during the genocide. Um, his physical health as a 67-year-old man and who's also a cancer survivor in remission um, ca cannot hold on to uh, cannot hold on a long time in these um, disgusting conditions. And so his health today is not good, um, but we pray every day that he continues to hold on. Yeah, and Anis, when the last time you talked to him? So we, through our advocacy, we have the privilege to speak with him five minutes a week on Friday mornings, my mornings in Washington, D.C., which is the afternoon for him. He's always on time and because it's the only time that he gets to speak and to use his voice and to speak to people since throughout, since he's essentially in isolation, he's not allowed to speak to anyone or have contact with anyone. And so we spoke with him this last Friday. Um, and he, we actually, I'm processing about this speaking because his voice did not sound very well. He sounded low. And I asked him, well, if he was ill or if he wasn't doing so well. And he mentioned to us that it was the first time he had spoken to somebody in the last couple of days. And so my father is staying strong, like Karen is saying. His conscious is what keeps us going, keeps him going. But his physical health and the way they're trying to break him by the day, not allowing him to have any social uh, encounters, not allowing him uh, to really get the medication that he deserves. Uh, is that really, I think that's what it's a, a, at least scares me the most right now. Uh, and I hope that that won't affect him mentally, but they're trying to do everything to break him. Um, but I would say though, our father is still our father. He never, never wants to make us scared. You know, he'll try to stay strong. We can, you know, it's us that worry the most. I think most of the time, you know, he, on the phone when we hear him, he's just reminding us to be strong and reminding us to continue our battle because he knows he misses us and we miss, we miss him too. 
And he always tells us, never do anything halfway, do it fully. And so it's a reminder that our struggle to reunite with him cannot be done halfway. We need to get it fully and get him back home. Yeah, and I will come shortly to the global campaign you're leading with your sister to freeing your father. But Michaela, the, the government in Rwanda accused the Rusisa Bagina as the founder, sponsor, and responsible of the FLN militia. The government claimed that Hotel Rwanda's activists declared a war against President Kagame regime when he said on a video in 2018, and I quote, the time has come for us to use any means possible to bring about change in Rwanda, as all political means have been tried and failed. Thus, I paid my unreserved support that National Liberation Forces launches against the Kagame army to free the Rwanda people. So what are your views on that? Um, uh, my views on the, on the trial um, uh, boil down to I expected a better trial <laughs> um, uh, in that uh, I've never met Paul Rusesa Bagina. Uh, I hadn't followed um, his activities in any detail or you know, I didn't know that much about what his foundation uh, was doing. Um, uh, then I was suddenly, you know, like many people heard about this extraordinary uh, rendition uh, and he was lured onto this plane in Dubai that he thought was going to go to to uh, to Bujumbura in Burundi and then lands in Kigali. Uh, and then it was clear that this was a very important trial for Kigali, for the Rwandan government, and that they were, they were you know, they arranged to have it broadcast to the world um, and uh, they had simultaneous translation into English. And I tried to watch as much of it as I could because I was really intrigued by the case that they were proposing to make. And there had been a lot of broadcasting of that, uh, that video that uh, Paul Rusesabagina had, uh, had recorded. And, and I was astonished, actually, because I had expected something approaching a serious case to be launched. And instead, there were just, even to me, and I'm not a lawyer, uh, there were so many things that were just wrong with the case. Um, uh, uh, the fact that they were swearing in witnesses, uh, sorry, that witnesses were giving evidence, key evidence that hadn't mm. been sworn in, um, that uh, he, he um, wasn't being allowed to, to, firstly, he wasn't allowed to choose his, his lawyers. And then when he finally uh, was allowed to have a lawyer of his choice. He wasn't being allowed to to see the lawyers and have confidential conversations with them. These are the basics of any jurisprudent system. Uh, the fact that he was being held in in um, in solitary. Uh, the fact that he was being tried simultaneously by Paul Kagame and the Rwandan media, who were constantly pronouncing him um, guilty in the media and you know the President Kagame the, man, the most important man the most powerful man in Rwanda was constantly saying he was guilty long before the trial took place um, uh, I mean there were just a series of you know the, the, the fact that the, 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 there were only sort of two key witnesses and when they presented their evidence it turned out um, that it didn't prove what it, it, was, it was supposed to prove and that these witnesses were in themselves had been discredited because they'd been used in other cases against key opposition figures. Yeah. They were just so wrong with it. And and I just sort of thought, what is the point of this trial? Because you haven't established your legal case. You know, this is not legally impressive. 
this is not going to this is not going to convince anyone and I, I ended up concluding it was basically a performance of a trial and the performance was aimed at dissidents and at anyone who was thinking of standing up to Kagame and criticizing his government and uh, criticizing his record on human rights and on, 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 on democratic accountability, press freedom. And it was about him saying to the world, listen, I can get you wherever you go. You know, you, you, you think you can flee me, you think you can move abroad, you can move to Belgium, you can move to the States, and then you can dare to criticize me and my rights. But you, you know, Michaela, the problem is uh, President Kagame, he, he wants to be introduced to the international community as the man on the white horse who ended the genocide, rebuilt the country and reformed the economy. However, what we have seen recently, he's arresting his opponents, murdering politicians in exile, and spying on dissidents' forms like Karin uh, Kanimba. So what is the real face of Kagame's regime? Yes, well, I, I completely agree. I mean, my book, Do Not Disturb, basically uh, delves into that side of the Kagame government. So um, if, you, if you visit... Uh, Rwanda today, and many journalists do, and the Western journalists in particular come away and they say, oh, it's so quiet, it's so safe, there's no corruption, policemen don't ask you for bribes, it's so neat, and it's so well-ordered, and everyone seems to really respect the government and the and the president. And, and, and then you look at the record, and what you see is, you know, this is a place where all power has been centralised in one man over the last 27 years, that he can keep running indefinitely. Um, you know, he's, he's changed the constitution, he's arranged for it to be changed so they can keep running, that he, uh, he wins 99% of the vote, supposedly, in yeah. elections, which, you know, as, as Paul was just up again himself, not at all uh, credible, that there is no independent press, that all the local media in Rwanda is just sort of repeating praises and, you know, they, they're singing his praises all the time. Um, and then you look at this record, exactly that, what, what you said, that inside Rwanda, anyone who criticizes him or, or who just doesn't seem to be quite effusive enough in their praise, they're either um, disappeared or, or in many cases they, yeah. they are killed uh, or they're arrested. Um, and then the people who free, the people who flee are usually journalists or political activists, all former members of his own regime, his own elite regime. Or, hotel, or, or maybe Hotel Rwanda's activist daughter, Karen Kanemba, and, and let me go to Karen, because you are a recent victim of this regime. It looks like the Rwandan government are coming after you, Karen. The Guardian reported that you were a victim of the Israeli spyware Pegasus. Rebort strongly suggested that the Kagame government, which has long been suspected of being a client of the Israeli surveillance firm NSO, has been able to monitor your private calls and discussions with U.S., European, and British government officials. However, spokesperson for the Rwandan government said that the country doesn't use this software system. So what happened with your phone card? So um, Amnesty International um, Security Lab, which conducts forensics analysis on um, on cell phones, conducted a forensics analysis on my phone and determined that my phone had been infected with the Pegasus software. And um, they had very strong indications that this was from the Rwandan government. And um, this is frightening for me. It's 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 uh, it makes me shake to my bones, frankly, because 
I know that for many years, the Rwandan government followed my father. Um, they surveilled him. They tried to intimidate him. There were even assassination attempts in our home in Brussels. Um, they broke in and destroyed things. And so um, they, I know that this is a method of the Rwandan government to, fill, to surveil and, intimid- and follow and intimidate people. And we also know that this led to the kidnapping and torture of my father. So I'm frightened that because I'm speaking out, because I'm speaking out on behalf of my father, because I'm standing for human rights, that this will happen to me next. They have already proven that they can um, spy on me and follow me virtually. Um, and now we've learned physically. But um, but the fact is, what can happen is that I can also be kidnapped and tortured and put on the show trial as my father. And so it frightens me. But um, but this is the reality of the regime that we're dealing with. This is the methods that they use um, in order to silence critics to and to intimidate people into silence. But how this um, spying on your phone affect the case of your father? Any impact? Yes. Yes. So we know that um, throughout by spying on me, they had been um, following all of the conversations that our my father's legal team, international legal team is having. Um, they intercepted my father was able to assign two Rwandan lawyers to his case in Rwanda. And um, some of the sometimes when the Rwandan uh, lawyers would go to to see him at the prison, they would um make it they would look for documents that we had never gave told our one lawyers and had only discussed um uh internally with our international legal team and they would try to confiscate things from them so we know that it directly their impacted their actions and how to to interfere with my father's legal defense um but they also listened in on conversations that i had with the minister the belgian minister of foreign affairs in her office they've listened and this is all visible to the forensics report. They've listened in and followed the communications I've had with members of the British Parliament or the state, the US State Department. So they not only spied on me and my family and my father's entire team, um, but also on other governments that I had contacts with, such as the Belgian government, the UK government, the the US government. And so it's um, it's frightening that they are still, even after kidnapping our dad, they are still trying to 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 stop us from the efforts to 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 save his life. Yeah, talking about all these Western governments, Anis, regarding the international campaign to freeing your father, in June, the U.S.-based Lantus Foundation for Human Rights and Justice filed a formal petition to the U.S. State Department and Treasury calling for Magnitsky sanctions against two persons. Firstly, the Rwandan Justice Minister, Johnston Businga, and the head of Rwanda Investigation Bureau, Cole Janet Rohongo, for their role in human rights violation committed against Paul Rosessa Bakina. Would you please give me more details about this petition and about this magnetic sanctions uh, yes, yes, of course. So, you know, so the Magnitsky sanctions today are one of the few tools that governments have around the world to to hold accountable uh, to hold accountable uh, corruptions and human rights violators. And the Magnitsky sanctions uh, are global, and so the 
so the Lentos Foundation leveraged this tool that governments have to hold accountable the people who have essentially orchestrated and led my father's kidnapping, which is an illegal activity, a criminal activity. Um, and so they they actually did this in the United States uh, with the Treasury and the State Department. And they also filed the same sanctions in the United Kingdom uh, because the United Kingdom is also part of the country that have uh, enacted the global Magnitsky sanctions. And... Um, Throughout last a couple of weeks, you know the United the British the United Kingdom Parliament has started to think critically about uh, these sanctions, specifically to Rwanda and like the people you said here, Businge and Janel. Uh, former Minister Businge is very interesting because he was actually nominated by the Rwandans to become the ambassador of Rwanda in the United Kingdom. So it's even more important and more critical for the British Parliament to consider this critically because the person who oversaw this injustice, this lack of fair trial, who oversaw the illegal kidnapping of my father, is the same person that Rwanda wants to bring to the United Kingdom and to represent them. And I, I believe you briefed the House of Lords in the UK recently about this case and about the Businga's case, yeah? Yes, yes, we did. And, and so uh, that's where we really uh, saw kind of the support and the interest of the British government on this case, because we had the opportunity to brief the House of Lords uh, by the invitation of Baroness Kennedy, who's the director of the International Bar Association, uh, to talk about our case and to really find the solutions that can really bring us one step closer to holding these people accountable. And one of the solutions that came to this meeting was the Magnitsky sanctions. And we had the honor to have Bill Browder, who's worked a lot with uh, the, the British Parliament on these kind of sanctions, to also provide his input. And so we've seen that a lot of people in the United Kingdom are very worried about these kind of uh, violations, because in addition to having Rwanda, to, to having this minister come as the ambassador to 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 the United Kingdom, um, Rwanda is also going to be at the head of the Commonwealth for the next two years. And what happened to my father is anti-Commonwealth principles, and the list can be long on some of the things. And so the number one, though, is the rule of law and human rights and democracy. All these things we have not seen in Rwanda over the last uh, 27 years under the Rwandan dictatorship of President Kagame. And so yeah. we were very excited to see that uh, the United Kingdom is really thinking about this in a critical way. Yeah, and Karen, um, would you tell us more about the international campaign to free your father? You are just communicating with the UK government or there is other visits and other efforts with other governments? Yeah, so um, this is a global campaign for, for our father's freedom. And we are so lucky to have the support of millions of people around the world. Um, just this October, the European Parliament adopted a resolution calling for my father's immediate release and repatriation back home. They condemned the show trial, they condemned the kidnapping, and they condemned Rwanda for its records of human rights abuses. The Belgian Parliament did the same thing. So did the Balearic Islands Parliament. 
Parliament and the Italian National Bar, the European Bars Federations, the American Bar Association. There's a long list of individuals, including foundations like the Kennedy Foundation or the Lantos Foundation, that have continued to advocate with us on our father's behalf. Um, and another important detail is that even the, the United States Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs um, has taken my uh, father's case. So essentially, they consider him to be an illegal detainee or hostage. Um, and the Congress, the U.S. Congress also has written two letters to President, uh, one to President Kagame calling for our father's immediate release and another to Secretary of State Anthony Blinken asking him to use all diplomatic means at his disposal to bring our father back home. So we know the pressure is there. The international community is aware of this injustice. However, in order to, 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 come, to bring our father home, to put enough pressure on the Rwandan government to bring our father home, is that we need to have a unified message coming from all parts of the world. And that is why we have engaged in going to all these different countries, to all the different parliaments, speaking to all these different organizations for them to bring their voices and their influence um, forward in order to help free my father. I would like to add that I think the yeah. main reason why this campaign is working, and I think we're very grateful of this, is that the issues of human rights violation and the rule of law is an issue that is often that cuts across any political party that you see, a lot of organizations around there. So in the United States, where you have Democrats and Republicans who don't get along about anything these days, are are able to get along on these kind of issues. Where in the EU, you have a different faction fractions. You can get the entire entire uh, European Union Parliament to um, to vote on a resolution that is voted at ninety five percent and plus. All to say that this issue of human rights violation and really the rule of law is something that's cut that cuts across borders. Yeah, so um, it's a great campaign and a great global campaign, but I, I, I want to ask you, Michaela, we uh, followed up um, similar campaigns, the international community, the State Department in the US, the House of Commons in, in, in the UK, the European Parliament, they all issued a report, put pressure on Egypt to respect the human rights, put pressure on Turkey to release journalists, on China, on every single authoritarian regime in this world. It even put pressure on the Saudi Arabia after the murder of Jamal Khashoggi in 2018. But nothing happened. Nothing changed. These leaders are still in power. So my question, do you believe that governments like Kagame's one may respond to such an international pressure regarding Rosisa Bagina's case? Um, yes, because I think it depends on which country you're dealing with. Um, some of the countries you just described are very powerful and they have all sorts of levers um, which they can use in the West, you know, because they're sitting on massive oil reserves because they're very important yeah. geostrategic partners. And so the West has to sort of, well, it doesn't have to, but it chooses to downpedal um, its, um, its sanctions or its criticism or its influence. Uh, with Rwanda, people tend to forget that the Rwandan government depends for its operating budget on over 50% of its operating budget is paid for by aid donors, by bilateral donors. Um, so uh, people like the government in Britain, the government in America, uh, the government in France, in Belgium, they are keeping that, that government in Rwanda afloat. 
And so um, when at a certain point those governments decide that this is a, should be a pariah nation or this is a, a country that is operating outside the norms of decent behavior, it's going to matter a lot. Uh, they have very, very powerful levers at their command. Uh, and long before they need to apply those levers, they could start putting pressure on, on Kigali. And they often choose not to because it's awkward and they don't like to do that. And Kagami is a very abrasive and, and um, domineering kind of player. But they, they have a whole range of um, instruments that they can use for influence on, on Kigali. But you, you know, Michaela, some Western governments, they, they are choosing stability over human rights. So in Rwanda's case, in Rosisa Bagina's case, um, do this Western government choose stability that's Kagami? Well, I think they yeah. think they're choosing stability. And I think that's so ironic because to me, this is not a stable government that Kagama has put in place. Yeah. This is a government, you know, that we see his armed forces have invaded Congo repeatedly. They support militias in Eastern Congo. They have also been accused of Burundi of plotting a coup. They're at daggers drawn with neighboring Uganda. Uh, you know, this is not a force for stability, his government. Um, and so the idea that, you know, he's keeping Central Africa stable is one of the great misapprehensions, it seems to me. Um, you know, he is a former rebel leader who toppled the um, government of Habyarimana, which was admittedly a xenophobic, genocidal government. But he has not uh, introduced stability to the Great Lakes. He has done the opposite. From what Karen and Anis explained now with the international campaign, do you think that the international uh, community, the Western governments, the diplomats, turning a blind eye to Rusi Sabagina's case? Uh, I think they will try to. Uh, that's what they tend to do um, when these awkward um, human rights campaigns uh, come up. I mean, I'm very much in favor of Magnitsky sanctions, but I would like to see them extended to a far longer list of Rwandan officials than just uh, Johnson Businje and the head of the Rwanda Investigation Bureau. I would like to see them being applied to the people who have killed, harassed, attacked, intimidated, and hunted down activists and journalists, Rwandan activists, Rwandan journalists, Rwandan human rights campaigners in every, you know, in, in all sorts of countries around the world, in Scandinavia, in Europe, in America, in Australia, because mm. that's actually what the Rwandans do do. So I think that's very, very important. And there is yeah. a principle at stake here. I mean, if we're not going to allow the Russians to do this in Salisbury um, and in London, or we're going to try and stop them, um, then why on earth would we not uh, be similarly muscular when it comes to Paul Kagame? Brilliant. So I, I think we need to end this episode and this amazing discussion with some messages from Karen and Anis. And so whoever wants to answer, just jump in and answer the question. So... What's your message to the Biden's administration? Um, I'm happy to go. So my message to the Biden administration is that we've seen that over the last year or so, that more Americans and American national, like my father, who is a legal permanent resident, are being captured and taken hostage, not by a terrorist groups, but by other governments that the United States work with. Specifically, those other governments are Russia, China, Iran, Venezuela, governments that are considered adversary to the Biden administration. My father was kidnapped from the United States and is today in, illegally detained in Rwanda. Rwanda is a country that is partner 
with the United States, a country that benefits greatly of tax, U.S. taxpayers' money, a country that has judicial cooperation with the United States. So my ask to President Biden and the administration is, if you cannot give our family the hope of, of seeing our father again by leveraging this relationship that you have with Rwanda, what kind of message and what kind of hope will you give to the families of those who are wrongfully detained in Russia, in China, in Iran, or Venezuela, in those places that you consider adversaries? Great. And Karin, what is your message to the Belgian government and European countries? Um, so I, we're grateful to the, to, the, to the European Parliament and the Belgian government that have already spoken out on our father's behalf. We know that they have adopted several resolutions. They have been publicly vocal in criticizing what is happening. However, words are not enough and we need actions behind those words. We need to see actions and we need to see them putting enough pressure on the Rwandan government to let our father go. Our father is not only a human rights activist, um, he's also a hero, a hero to the 1,268 people whose lives he saved during the Rwandan genocide. But he's also our hero, our father, who saved us, adopted us, and raised us as his own. He needs our, us to save him now. So we ask everyone in Europe and in America and in Africa and everywhere across the world to help us to join this campaign and help us bring our father home. Excellent. And Michaela, if I ask you about your message to President Kagame. Uh, I would, um, uh, what, to President Kagame? Yeah. <laughs> I, I would like him to start respecting international human rights norms. Uh, and the rule of law. I mean, that's all you expect of a head of state, is that they should respect the law. Yeah. And so the final message in this episode, I think it should be to the hero of Hotel Rwanda. So Karen and Anis, what is your message to your father, Paul Rosessa Bagina? That will tell him that we love him. Um, we love him so much and he needs to stay strong, to hold down and to know that he has the support of millions of people around the world. Mm, I would say, Papa, hang in, hang in there. We got this. We're working very hard for you night and day and know that you're not alone. You're not alone and everyone is behind you and you will get out of there. We'll give you a, a hug very soon. What a message to end with. Thank you very much, Anis Kanimba and Karin Kanimba. And also thank you for to Michaela Rong for joining me today in this episode. So this was an episode about uh, the two adopted Rwandan sisters, Karin Kanimba and Anis Kanimba, whose father saved their lives from the genocide in 1994. And they are now working to save his life, the life of Paul Rosisa Bagina. Thank you very much for everyone to joining me today. And see you next week in Untold Stories. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.